0: Hello and welcome to Through the Human Geography Lens, a podcast from the Worldwide Human Geography Data Working Group, or WWHGD. I'm Terry Ryan. And I'm Gwyneth Holtz. And today, we're here with our guest, Mr. Jim Corson, from the International Mission Board to talk about IMB's ethno-linguistic mapping.
1: Thanks for inviting me.
0: Yeah, Jim, we met you back in 2017 at the Esri Federal Users Conference, and you were a speaker for a couple of WWHGD webinars since then. Understanding Global Data and Mapping of Languages, and you were here with us for our 50th WWHTd event focused on planetary health. Um, so it's great to have you on the show, and could you tell us a little bit about the mission of IMB, specifically your work?
1: Yeah. Well, IMB is an evangelical Christian missions organization with a 175-year history. Uh, it's based in Richmond, Virginia. And... Um, We do work around the world. So right now we have about 3,600 missionaries in 131 countries. And my relationship with IMB started in 1990 when I went to East Asia as a field missionary, primarily tasked with doing evangelism and church planning, learned the Taiwanese language, which is one of the major Chinese languages, and then later tried to learn Mandarin. Didn't do very well with that one but uh, got pretty proficient with Taiwanese. And then our organization began to take a more, um, I guess a deeper dive into ethno-linguistic groups instead of just looking and saying, hey, if we work in this country, we're probably reaching all the people. We realized there's a lot of peoples that are smaller and more obscure and they're neglected. So we began to do research on that. And I was asked to help out with some of that research in East Asia. So that got me started. And then once we started to do research, we discovered that having a list of people groups and understanding really where they are is very, very different. So we would send people out to find a people group and they would search high and low and they couldn't find them. And they'd come back and say, hey, our data list is wrong. And I would try to say, well, I'm not sure our data list is wrong. I think maybe our geographic location is wrong. And so that just really propelled us into doing more and more uh, looking into how can we improve uh, what we know about where people groups are located
0: so that's interesting what made you interested in discovering these people groups like what was it that was so important that you felt you needed a better understanding
1: well of course our our mission our aim is based on a scriptural mandate to get the gospel to um, the most translations of the bible say all nations but that that's translated all nations, it's a phrase in Greek that's Pantata Ethne. And that word ethne, you might recognize because it's the root of the word ethnic, ethnicity that we get. So we look at our, our biblical mandate for who we are as an organization and what we do as making sure we get the gospel to all peoples, every ethnic group. And what we discover is that in many countries, most of the folks who have not heard the gospel are small, isolated groups that you don't just naturally encounter in the capital cities. And that's where most uh, foreigners tend to go. And so you get off the grid, you go off into into the wilds of the Amazon, and they're in remote locations. You get out into Tibet, they're in remote locations. So understanding where they are so that you can get resources to them, whether it's a radio broadcast or it's an actual person on the ground, it's important to know where they are.
2: So that sounds like incredibly difficult information to find where do you how do you gather that data and where do you get that from
1: uh yeah well there's a there's a high correspondence between language and people uh, about sixty five percent of the peoples in the world are small groups. a single group speaks a single language. so we start with linguistic resources and there's some really good ones out there uh, a lot of our Listeners are familiar with Ethnologue. It's uh, research done by the Summer Institute of Linguistics. So, they've got descriptions for a lot of languages. They have translators on the ground and they can give you a description village by village of where people's located. But we've done some pretty low tech kinds of things where somebody sits on the back of a motorcycle and they ride around through villages and they play a recording. They've got five different languages on their recording and they mark which language did they understand and bring that back and we note it. It gives us locations, and from that, then we're able to uh, draw our polygon to include another village.
2: So it's language, ethnicity, and language—I mean, and religion—in the same data set.
1: It's uh, oh, it gets complicated. With it's ethnic at its at its origin. So you think um, I'll talk about what I know. You think about Chinese, but the Chinese speak a lot of different languages. So. A lot of times people think, well, everybody speaks Mandarin, but that's really not the case. There's multiple languages out there and they're spoken in different geographic areas. So if you're doing a, a resource that you're trying to get to people, whether it's giving them a copy of the Bible or playing a copy of a video for them, it needs to be in the in the right language variety. So we want to understand it's not so much who they are ethnically, but what do they understand? What language do they function at the highest level in? And can we get that resource before them in that language?
2: So then how do you take that information and put it on a map?
1: Ah, uh, well, we, we use our geographic systems uh, to draw polygons and we start with a primary location we know where the major villages are that a group is done we draw a boundary around that and we look for some natural kinds of barriers sometimes there's a river and that means people aren't likely to move across that river uh, sometimes we find up you know maybe an anthropological project a dissertation someone's written about a group and they describe where they are uh, listing the villages we can we can do that and so we just we started drawing those polygons and it wasn't a oh let's just do this and it's it's done. I think it took us five years to get from start to having a completed set, and then if you can imagine with 12,000 polygons, uh, they don't all get looked at on a regular basis. So we put them out in the public so that people can see them associated with a particular group and provide feedback, and then based on that feedback, we're able to improve them.
2: So you said since it's out for the public to see, is it on your website? What you know? Where is it?
1: Oh, okay. We have a a website called peoplegroups.org. And that's the primary place where we deliver that data. And if you, there's a map, you can click on explore, you can see a map, you see a bunch of points. So that pulls up a a layer with 12,000 points, one for every people group in our database. If you click on one of those points, it'll pull up a detail page, and on that detail page, it presents a map with a polygon that shades the area where that group is found. Um, so, I mean, you think about the challenges of that. If, if you're using a polygon to represent, where are Americans in America? Well, they're everywhere. You know, there's groups like that, but there are other groups that they are smaller that are only in a certain region of the country, or maybe so small that they're only, they're on a reservation somewhere. They're in some little isolated valley. So we try to represent those so that a user interested in knowing about that one people group could go there and see, a pretty reliable uh, location of where that group is found.
0: That's really interesting. So when you talk about discovering people groups, has there been a people group that's really um, surprised you?
1: Well, people groups come and go. I think the thing that surprises a lot of uh, people who use our data is why does the list change so much? by now, it's 2022, don't we know all the peoples in the world? And the answer is no, we don't. Uh, There are things that are going on in communities where a group that had sort of lost its identity and was moving toward being assimilated with other groups now begins for whatever reason, sometimes it's financial, sometimes it's economic, the government passes a policy that there are certain resources available if you're a part of this people group. And groups begin to move from assimilation back toward uh, reestablishing their unique identity. And they recapture their language, which might've been going into decline. And uh, now they become, it's almost like a new group uh, that forms. And I think that's one of the most interesting things is just this whole thing of assimilation as groups. Languages fall into disuse and groups assimilate to others. And then geopolitical events or natural disasters push them to a new location. And there they sort of reformulate who they are.
0: Wow, that's really fascinating. So on your, your journeys, has there been an area that um, has really touched you and and maybe it's become your your favorite
1: yeah i think my favorite um i I got to go down to a region in uh, far northwest brazil it's called the dog's head region because if you look at it on a map it looks like the little head of a dog with a mouth cut out there and um a a little town called sao gabriel de Cachoeira, sao gabriel of the waterfalls it's on the amazon and during the high tide season there's this this huge waterfall during the low tide season, they say you can walk across the rocks there. It's not that much of a town, but there are 25 to 30 groups that come down tributaries of the river in canoes and bring fish to trade to get uh, flour and sugar. I don't know, whatever people eat. They, they, They trade for the groceries they need to go back to their villages. And so you can literally stand there and just watch canoe after canoe come in, um, and people bring their goods to trade. They'll bring their fish. They'll put a stake in the ground. The fish, you see them splashing around there, uh, unlike anything I'd ever seen here.
0: Wow, that's fascinating.
2: It sounds like a crossroads. Sounds like a really beautiful place. So how many people groups do you think you saw just in that day that you were there.
1: In in the time that I was there, we were able to identify by name uh, at least a dozen groups. There are others that we saw. We don't know who they are, and that's one of the challenges in dealing with people groups. Uh, people, even if you talk with them, they don't always identify themselves uh, exactly as who they are. Uh, that's not trying to hide anything. It just that doesn't always come up in discussions. Like it doesn't often often come up in our conversation. of, oh, who were your ancestors, and which country did they come to the United States from? Um, and I know in, in Southwest China, talking with people, you could talk with people who were uh, Han Chinese and people who were Zhuang, and you would not know the difference unless it happened to turn to that particular conversation, maybe something about their um, their hometown, and then it emerges, well, actually, they're they're Zhuang, and then you can talk about that, but it's it's not always the first thing people tell you. So it's sometimes hard to know.
0: Yeah, that is interesting. We did a a webinar series, was it late in the fall of last year on neighborhoods? And I remember one of the kind of key insights was a neighborhood is, you know, you can, you can look at the boundaries, physical boundaries of a neighborhood. But if you really want to understand a neighborhood, the people who live in it are going to describe it differently. And so, there are you know, different ways to look at a neighborhood, physical boundaries, and the people who live in it and how they would describe themselves. And that's always gonna be different. So I'm, I'm certain with people groups, it, it's it, very dependent on, on time and who you talk to by how they identify with the group that they belong to.
1: And also where they are. Are you seeing them really in their homeland? So when I was in the Amazon, I was seeing people very close to their homeland. But then there were times when I would be in, in Hong Kong and someone would point out a building and say, all of the West Africans congregate in that, they've created their neighborhood, to use your word. They're in that building, which which is natural. People want to get together with people uh, who are like them, who speak their language, who understand their culture. So in, in cities, that's often the case, you'll find these little communities of people. So I, I think it's fascinating sometimes to compare what you encountering this group in their natural uh, homeland versus encountering them in a, we call it a diaspora setting, that for whatever reason, they've gone to another country. And there's an awful lot of people that fall into that category now.
2: That's really interesting. You're talking about um, polygons. You know, Do you take diaspora situa- populations and map them somewhere else?
1: We try. We try. And one of the things that people sometimes get confused about, say, in our people group list, if we say there's 12,000 peoples, uh, really there's only 8,500 peoples. But some of those peoples, Chinese are found in 87 countries in our database. Deaf are found in 234 countries in our database. So maybe 8,500 unique peoples. But there are peoples, uh, the majority peoples in a lot of our countries that are scattered around the world. So we try to map some of those, but you could imagine, uh, how would you map Americans to Japan? There's probably Americans in every Japanese city, business people, things like that. But there might not be a recognizable community. And yet when there's uh, some kind of a refugee situation, you'll often find in a particular city, you'll you'll have a large number of refugees from a given country that uh, gather there. And over time, they might disperse and spread out, but they tend to be in a more centralized location initially. So we try to do that, but that's probably the most challenging thing that we try to do. Because often by the time we get the information and draw the polygon, we sometimes joke, people won't stay in their polygons. If they would, this would be much easier.
0: (laughs) I was uh, reading on IMB site and I know you are, uh, IMB is working right now uh, with some of the Ukrainian refugees supporting Mm -hmm. through aid uh, is there anything that your group is doing right now to kind of get ahead and, and understand where people are going uh, for future mapping efforts?
1: Well, we're not trying to map those people right now. I think probably six months from now, we'll focus a little bit more on that. Our our initial concern is with the humanitarian relief. So we have a, a sister organization that uh, handles disaster relief, but our field personnel are the ones who implement that. So somebody else ships material there, our folks there are on the ground already in those places that are literally folks that had to leave that country or were already in an adjacent country. So they're on the ground, they've got language, they're ready to provide uh, the relief that's needed. And then once we get past the humanitarian crisis, we try to sort of take a step back and say, okay, now are we seeing established communities now in this new setting? And if so, we try to draw that but uh, in the middle of a situation, it's so fluid, it's it's impossible to do.
0: It really is fluid right now. Any new updates that you're working on?
1: Well, we're working on some new innovations. So I mentioned we've got 12,000 polygons and imagine one person editing 12,000 polygons, a lot of them don't get the attention they need. We're working on a data model that would allow us to auto-generate those based on user reports of a group in a new location so it's basically taking the lowest level of admin boundaries that we have and coding them so that we currently show this group in these two states but now several folks report that in this adjacent county there's large numbers of them and the model would automatically dissolve that in with the current polygon so you'd see them expanding as we get reports of People in new places, and we think that over the next year we're going to get transitioned completely into that model, which I'm excited about because it it frees us up to do a little more research and a little less of the tedious work of uh, the you know the manual work of the polygons.
2: Oh, that's really interesting. What other data goes into that?
1: The data that comes in, of course, our data describes the people, the language, the religion, the various things uh, um, that we know, the attributes we know of that group, but we have Uh, a field reporting application so our folks could uh, simply drop a point and said we gave out a bible here and this was the the language of the ethnicity of the person Uh, we showed the jesus film which is popular we we showed that in this location even in disaster relief we encountered x number of people in disaster relief here they were from this ethnic group Uh, that data Right now that comes in, but not into a system where we can easily call that data out and and have it address our polygons. But the new system's all gonna be focused around um, GIS, so that as soon as they report, it pops up on our screen and we see, oh, we've got this group reported in another location. And so it's as simple as reviewing that, checking it, and then that rolls into our shape.
2: Do you use external data sets
1: in it? We do, we use external data sets. Yeah, in a lot of ways. Uh, But it it varies very much by country. Uh, I've done a considerable amount of work on our data in India. And we use the Anthropological Survey of India, which is a project started in 1985, went through uh, um, 2030 something volumes of data. And you think about it, anthropological interview or a dissertation you've seen where they go into great detail about a group. This goes in detail about 2200 groups. So it describes literally district by district where they are uh, along with their, um, their language, their religion, what they eat. Uh, who they interact with, what kind of occupations they typically have. So there are data sets like that. Um, It's rare to come across something as comprehensive as that for a country, but we're always looking for those kinds of
2: things. That sounds like an amazing data set. So I remember in 2020 when you talked during the planetary health event that you mentioned use land scan data and some of the season data. How does that get wrapped into some of these polygons or into the model, or is this is this something new that you're looking at?
1: Well, we used, Landscan was initially the thing that we used, and, and part of that was just to make sure that when we're looking, it, when you're drawing a polygon, if you take administrative boundaries, uh, often they cover uninhabited areas. And so we were wanting to intersect, you know, inhabited territory with a polygon, so if you look at our map people look at it and say yeah that's where people are not they look at that and say well nobody lives up there in that part of the you know the desert we don't want that um, we're we're using a lot more from WorldPop now uh, WorldPop has not only uh, a current data set that gives you um, a population density grid but they have data sets going back 20 years that can actually show change over time which is something that land scan can't do very well Uh, And they tell you that, Landscan tells you, hey, don't compare them from year to year for that. But WorldPop is built theirs in such a way that you can do that. So we can look at the actual change in population density in a particular area over time. And we're using that to inform our data now.
2: Is there a way for listeners to download the data versus just viewing it on the website?
1: Uh, Yes, there is. Uh, We have an open data site. Uh, Hopefully we can provide the URL. Users can download the data set. They can download the points are the polygons. And we've had some users have found that very helpful because they can then use that for spatial analysis and things like figuring out if we put a tower, uh, or if we buy time on a tower on this mountain, do we actually get coverage of certain people groups that we're trying to, to get a message to? So um, we want people to have access to that publicly available on our open data site.
2: And we'll put the link for that in the show notes
0: so everybody can have access to that. Thanks, Jim. Wow, well, that's really great. So. Um... We can have our listeners go to peoplegroups.org and take a look at the data. We'd also recommend, as we always do, www.hd.org has a human geography library if you're looking for openly available data, or if you'd like to go back and listen to Jim uh, and the 2017 and 2020 webinars. So Jim, we appreciate you being on the show um, this has been a great conversation, and we look forward to, I think we will see you at Ezra in July.
1: Uh, looking forward to
2: it.
0: Thanks so much.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Please join us again next week for another conversation
2: on human geography and human security on Through the Human Geography Lens. If you're interested in learning more about human geography and the WWHD, check us out at WWHD.org where you can find more than 5,000 cataloged human geography data sets and access presentations and recordings for more than 50 data-driven events. I'm Gwyneth Holt. And I'm Terry Ryan. Thanks for joining us, and we hope to see you next time.